You're listening to The Elephant Test. We're dedicated to the B2B marketing community and here to explore the practices, thoughts, and ideas of effective B2B marketing executives. Thank you for joining us on The Elephant Test. Uh, I'm your host, Sky Cassidy, and joining us today to talk about B2B data and uh, data sources, uses, and hygiene is Ruth Stevens. Uh, Ruth consults on customer acquisition and retention, teaches marketing at business schools in the U.S. and abroad, and is a guest blogger at Biznology and Target Marketing Magazine and a contributing writer at Adage. We're thrilled to have you on today. Um, are we ready to get started? Yes, thank you. Excellent. So B2B data, obviously, it's something that's uh, close to my heart. My company is a B2B data company itself. Um, really excited to talk to you about this. If you guys don't know who Ruth Stevens is, as a B2B marketer, you are not doing your job. Make sure you're following her. Um, <clears throat> But before we really get into the, the kind of data stuff, and that's um, where, where your expertise is, I'd kind of like to dig into you a little bit as a person, kind of where you came from, how you got into uh, B2B marketing. Wow, thanks. Well, I um, actually entered the direct marketing world in my first um, real business opportunity. I was uh, at Time Warner's book division at Book of the Month Club in my first job out of business school. And there I learned the basics of direct and database marketing. And I just loved it from the first day and have been uh, a data-driven marketer ever since. But after about seven years there, I had an opportunity to move to Ziff Davis, a computer industry publisher, which around then was at the peak of its powers, both financially and in terms of influence, they published the leading computer industry magazines, just chock full of advertising, and were making a ton of money. They also had amazing, very popular and, and profitable events in the context. So that's where I learned about B2B and the mission there, of course, was sales lead generation for a sales force that was selling ads, and in my case, selling um, computer industry information on CD-ROMs sold by subscription. So it's a lot of fun, and I've, I've stayed in B2B ever since. Yeah, Zip Davis, a, a big data company, is that where you kind of uh, fell in love with data, I guess I'd say? Well, not really. I, I actually got entran- entranced by data at Book of the Month Club, where we made all of our marketing decisions based on projected ROI of customer acquisition for the special interest book clubs, which is my where I started. And we used spreadsheets and SaaS um, documents as a way to estimate how much we could afford to spend on acquiring a new member in a book club based on lookalike data of similar prospects and how they had behaved on the so-called back end and whether we were going to make a, a positive contribution in that acquisition to the company. And if it looked like we couldn't uh, possibly acquire the customer at the right price, then it was my job to go back to the media vendor and try to negotiate a lower media cost so that the ROI would come out where we needed it to be. So 
those marketing decisions were all driven by information about customer behavior and and uh, the 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 positive and negative behaviors, meaning the the revenue that they generated for us, and also the expenses like you know how much it cost us to ship out the the books and what were their return rates and bad debt rates and so forth. Great. So you've made a little bit of a turducken of data there for me, which I want to uh, <laughs> I want to speak to. Which the, <laughs> we get in trouble with data all the time over here because just using the word data can be very loaded. Mm. A lot of people have a lot of definitions of what data means to them, and and you addressed both of them there. So I kind of want to call that out and separate them for the listeners. Um, so. When you speak of data and you talk of marketing numbers and stuff, you're talking about kind of the analytics and looking at the uh, traffic and who's interacting with you and, and number of leads and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then there's the data that's the actual contact info. And, and you had both of those that you, that you were discussing there. But I, I guess the problem I see a lot of times when talking about data is it, it means so many different things. Some people right. it's just a character on Star Trek and some people it's contact info and uh it can mean so many different things. So I guess uh, we're going to get pretty messy as we talk here because you're involved so much in data. Um, I'm going to try to always kind of point out which data we're we're talking about, so the uh, the listeners don't get uh, don't get too confused. Yeah, and I I agree. I I think that we agreed on a topic today that is more is data defined as a customer record, and that's where I I I hope we'll spend most of our time. Uh, so mm-hmm. I. Uh, but you know the data about a, a customer record is really, I think, today the most important element in a B two B data driven strategy. Most of us are not using the kinds of customer behavior data for uh, acquisition purposes in on the B two B side that that is done in direct marketing and e commerce and other um, consumer you know, ROI-driven business decision-making. So glad, glad you pointed that out. And let's dive, dive into the customer record side because in the B2B world, there are some really interesting conundrums there and exciting new developments that we can talk about. Right. And then they start to merge together. I mean, you have a record where you have the person's email address, phone number, name, title, all that kind of stuff. But then within that same record, many companies will start to collect intent data, intent information. And then that you could really make an argument on both sides for what, what data bucket that fits in is, is that contact information or is that information like, you know, you're looking at how many times they clicked on certain parts of your website and and everything. It's, it starts to cross over almost and get muddy in between which, you know, is this something in an individual field in your CRM or is this something that goes into marketing analytics and it's just numbers um, type of a thing, but mm-hmm. yeah, let's let's stick to the contact information data stuff as as much as we possibly can. Uh, try to keep keep it clear for people. Um, before we again, before we dig into that too much, we got a little bit on on your background and where you came from. Can you tell us a little bit about your company, what you guys do there, um, kind of what your day to day is? Sure, thanks. Yes, I'm a sole practitioner, so there are no we guys here. It's just me, but I have been happily self-employed for 17 years, and I consult on B2B marketing for clients large and small. I also do a lot of training and 
corporate education and public education, whether it's in business schools or on behalf of associations like I've taught for the Association of National Advertisers and the Direct Marketing Association and many others who will send me into a company to train employees on certain topics. So um, I really enjoy the self-employed life. My typical deliverable is I'm asked to come in and look at their lead generation program today, for example, and make recommendations for improvements. Or another deliverable that I'm often asked to, uh, to focus on is companies that don't even have a marketing plan, which is remarkably uh, frequent in the B2B world where, you know, lots of things are going on, but nobody's ever sat down and thought about deep questions like, where is our low-hanging fruit audience? And what's our value proposition? And how can we motivate them to raise their hands and express interest? And then how can we qualify that interest? So, Yeah, yeah. I have a question for you on that. When you're going into companies, uh, what's what's the biggest issue you, I mean, that you usually find coming in that kind of surprises you? Oh, I imagine there's some low-hanging fruit sometimes where you just say, wow, this is easy. We should start doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a really good question. Well, to bring it back to the data side of the conversation, Sky, if you ask any B2B marketer in the world, I guarantee 99.9% of them, if you ask them, so what's the state of your data, they will say, our data stinks. And they won't use uh, that word. They'll use another word. <laughs> and so I know you have a family radio going on here, um, Sky, sorry. <laughs> but um, people really have trouble uh, acquiring and maintaining good information about customers and prospects. And when it comes to prospects, that that's understandable. You know, it's difficult to get good quality prospect data. But when it comes to current customers, it's shocking how many errors there are in the customer record. You would think that marketers would understand the importance of having the correct title, the direct uh, phone number, a a, um, legitimate and, and correct email address, and then other rich enhancements to the customer record, like, you know, if they were an existing customer, how much they bought or what was the, the margin on that, that revenue. Um, what else do we know about them? What are their interests? What are, you know, what's their wives and children's names? You know, things, the kinds of information points that can help a marketer be more effective in in current customer marketing, not to mention prospecting. So um, data is really one area that I often find to be a source of weakness in a typical B2B marketing department. And I guess if if you identify that as the the most important part and the thing that's most often an issue, um, I guess that's why you specialize in that particular area. I've always found it uh, shocking when uh, my company does a lot of cleaning and appending for companies. And typically it's not with a prospect list, it's with their client lists. And it's, it surprises me. Sometimes the list is very clean and we say, oh, wow, you know, this is very complete information. It's up to date. But 
and say, not only marketing is touching these, but the salespeople are usually yeah, touching these records as well. That's, you know, the clients. And, and we'd say, how is this information here this way? How is this information not in here? And I think it, on the sales side, it comes back to accountability. Like, how can you have a salesperson that doesn't have an accurate email for a contact they've been selling to for years or, you know, doesn't have their title or just doesn't all the information that's missing. Sometimes it can be really shocking or, or almost worse than missing is just inaccurate. It, it's there and, they, and somebody is seeing it regularly and, and it's just wrong. Uh, but I guess what I've found in the data industry is it's not difficult to get information anymore. Um, when I started out in this business in the early 2000s, getting people's contact information with email addresses in the B2B space was difficult. Um, you know, we had a really, really nice niche in that in that area. But then over time, recently, we you know we've identified that people have a bigger issue with data has become a commodity. Now they have so much of it, and it's maintaining it that's the issue. And for us, for the last decade plus, maintaining it's been the issue as a data company. So we. We've learned how to do that well, but most companies just aren't, you know, aren't tooled to maintain the volume of data that they've been able to collect now uh, because it's been such a commodity. You have companies have hundreds of thousands of records and they don't have a database administrator yeah. in-house. Um, you know, they can barely process it in a spreadsheet, uh, that, kind, that kind of stuff. It's just it's so much data and they can't keep up with how fast it goes bad. And so you end up having a lot yeah, of very dirty data. Yeah, that's so true. And I, I think we... They, we need to be tolerant and sympathetic because there are so many challenges in data cleanliness, thinking about the, the data that, or the, the rates of decay that I'm familiar with, where we say a uh, data element in a B2B customer record is likely to change at the rate of three to 5% per month. And, you know, keeping up with People's changing companies, changing titles, changing mail stops, changing phone numbers is really a, a legitimate business issue. So the fact that you know yeah. the, the the data has errors is is understandable. But the other thing, I, I loved your point about they don't even have a data administrator. That's where I think people like you and I can try to make a persuasive case that this is a serious business issue and uh, a squandered opportunity. If you are letting your data sit and decay without maintaining it, continuously updating it and and, uh, verifying it, you risk offending your customers and leaving business opportunity on the table so I, I often say, look, you can't just say, as a marketer, you can't just say, oh, data is so-and-so's job, that guy over in the corner who handles our data for us. I think we marketers need to take ownership, responsibility, and a personal interest in correct and complete records. Um, I would also add, just to your point about there's so much data flowing through companies. We also need, as strategic marketers, to think carefully about what data elements we want to maintain in a customer record. Because, as you pointed out, there's a ton of opportunity to cram a lot of fields into your record. And then 
once they're there, you want to, you know, invest in maintaining and, and updating them. And there may not be business value there. So you have to develop what I call a data strategy for, for the firm. You need to uh, uh, make the hard decisions about what elements in a customer record you want to maintain and which ones you want to just toss out. Right, right. One thing, I made a joke recently around the office here that um, I am against women taking their husband's name. Okay. And they looked at me strange and said, um, oh, okay, that's really progressive <laughs> of you. I said, no, no, no. It really makes the data difficult to maintain. <laughs> what a very practical way <laughs> to make social decisions. I like that. Yeah, we found the half-life of data is about two years, and we find people can kind of wrap their head around that when they say, oh, you haven't looked at your data in two years. Half mm-hmm. of it has gone bad then. That's just contacts that aren't there anymore. When you talk about people yeah. changing mm-hmm. titles and all the other kinds of things that change, direct numbers, extension, extensions change, all that stuff. It can it can be a disaster. And people come to us for data, for new data, and they demand you know 90% plus accuracy on data. But then within their own databases, they might have 50% accuracy, something like that. And it's crazy, especially when you're looking at a a customer file, that kind of stuff. It's not that many records. And it's really important that marketing, you know, take the lead on keeping that data accurate and up to date. And I think, like you said, deciding what's really important really helps too. So that you're not trying to keep everything accurate, everything up to date, just find the important stuff. Yeah, I was also going to make the the point about Relating to what you said about the salespeople not key entering data properly or understanding the importance of it, and that that's a subject that I think is really worthy of of some examination because I could also make the argument that uh, as a business owner, for me to have my highly valuable salespeople doing administrative tasks is not good use of their time. Um, I need my salespeople to be out selling in front of customers, not, you know, tracking down email addresses. So, but at the same time, the work has to be done or, you know, the email address needs to be tracked down. So um, some companies have a function called marketing operations that is responsible for that uh, to try to take it off of the salespeople's plates but it's a, a difficult decision for a business owner to, to figure out how to have, have it both ways. And <laughs> you're blaming um, some societal problems on, um, on data. I am too. I think uh, the marketing tech environment that we operate in today has forced us into some bad business practices. Um, our so-called CRM systems, which are Really, Salesforce automation systems, let's not forget that Salesforce.com and and all of its brethren were designed to be productivity tools for sales teams, not customer databases and and all the attendant um, maintenance issues are being foisted on a salesperson who's neither trained nor incented nor even you know, deserving of, of, of that job. So I blame, who do I blame? Mark Benioff or somebody for, you know, for, for part of this plight. I mean, I, I grew up, yeah, let's name names. Um, I, I grew up when um, a, a data-driven company would have a marketing database 
or a data warehouse that was fed by various sources. And, and for B2B companies to, uh, to call their so-called CRM system, formerly known as SFA system, their marketing databases is really uh, a mistake, I think. So would you recommend keeping separate systems for the marketing data and the, and the sales? I, I think a marketing department needs to have a, a database, yeah, that can be queried. You know, SFA systems were not developed for, for marketing querying. They were, but here, I'm getting a little bit out of my depth because I, I don't understand the technologies well enough. In our company, um, the CRM that we use, we've been customizing heavily for a while. And one of the things that I've noticed is originally we wanted all the marketing data to be in there. So salespeople had access to it when you have many contacts at the same company, just so they had access to more information. So we had it all in one centralized point. And then what we've been doing the last probably two years is we God, we probably created redundant fields for almost every status type you could have. Um, and the redundancy is in that there's one status for the sales team and one status for the marketing team. So it's the same database, but marketing and sales have their own almost version of it. You know, they have their own marketing. will have a contact status. They'll have a company status. They'll have, you know, all, all these different information. So marketing can pull based on what they mm -hmm. want to pull and sales can pull and they want without stepping on each other's, each other's toes, I guess. We found a one-time marketing uh, updated a bunch of contact statuses from a campaign and disqualified a bunch of contacts that salespeople were, you know, were pursuing at the time and were talking to and working to close and had, you know, proposals out to that kind of mm. stuff. And we realized, oh, these, yeah, these things really were in the same system now. We hadn't really considered separating the systems, but we we did need to separate the kind of so they weren't touching the same the same fields. They weren't touching the same statuses because they would they right. would conflict with each other. Yeah, this is a a great subject. I'm, you're inspiring me to go look into this a little bit more deeply. Yeah, I mean, we found when you talk about things falling through the cracks, and you, I mean, you go and consult at businesses, and you're probably looking for, I, you know, first off, what are the quickest, easiest things they're doing wrong that you can just do this, not this, and uh, and you'll have better results. You're losing a bunch of business here, you're losing money there, and that's yeah, what we found was when sales and marketing were cha changing the same statuses, you would have them throwing information out, sales would throw information out that marketing wanted to market mm. and needed to market to still. And marketing would throw things out that, that sales was actively working on because, you know, they'd fail the marketing activity or they'd fail the sales activity. And uh, yeah, having the, having those inf that information separate, I hadn't thought about. So uh, we'll take a break and uh, come back after the break. And we'll come back and we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about data more, get into the specifics of contact info, data sources, uses, hygiene, all that kind of good stuff. Our episode today is brought to you by Engageo. If you're thinking about ABM and not sure how to start or which plays to run, Engageo just came out with a new playbook for marketers featuring 16 plays that have been tested in the field to get results. Check them out at Engageo.com orchestration. Hi, we're back from the break. Uh, you're here with Sky Cassidy of The Elephant Test and Ruth Stevens of uh, eMarketing Strategies, of eMarketing Strategies. Sorry about that, Ruth. Um, we'll edit that out in post. Okay. Uh, I say that all the time, but we never do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're talking about B2B data, uh, data sources, uses, hygiene. Um, kind of want to get into covering those specific 
um, specific areas, see if we can kind of address them, go through any tips you have for people with data. I think you'd mentioned uh, before the break, hopefully not during the break, but before the break, um, talking about you know how people shouldn't be afraid of data. I really want to jump into that. So let's uh, go ahead and jump in. I've got contact info, data sources, uses, hygiene. Where do you want to start? Sure. Well, let's let's start with the. I, how about if we start with data sources? Because just building on the comment you made uh, before the break about how there's uh, data everywhere, it's commoditized. What I found that's so interesting is some of the innovative new sources that uh, are providing an opportunity to differentiate for marketers and also for data vendors. In a commoditized world, you end up you know, differentiating on price and it, it's just a, a terrible, uh, you know, pointless spiral downward. And um, we call it a commodity, but it's really a semi-commodity. It behaves kind of like a commodity, but it's not. It's just very difficult for companies to distinguish when they have, you know, X many of thousands of targeted records in a specific, um, you know, specific company's target audience. And another company has, it's, it's a, it's not a commodity, it's sold like a commodity, but then once people get it, they realize it's not, but then you already have it kind of. Right. Um, you know, so it's, it's a weird version of a commodity. Um, do we want to name some names of companies? Uh, you know, my company is a data company, but I tell people all the time, there's, you know, probably maybe a dozen list companies in the U.S. that I'd recommend that they talk to and reach out to and know who they are. Hmm. Yeah, I, boy, I'd love to see your, um, your, your list of recommended companies at, at some point. Um, what, what I'm finding it, it completely exciting is some of the stuff that, that's going on with social media data, even in the B2B world, which w- ha- has taken me by surprise. And also this whole direction of intent data that I think it's still shaking out or e- emerging as a category, but it's a very exciting prospect. Um, the um, I, Another area that I... I would point to is the widely underused data source known as the IP address of a web visitor where companies can actually see what firm or the, 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 the firm of the browser that visited your own homepage or your other company websites is publicly identifiable either by hand looking at um, at, at Google Analytics or through some of these service offerings where you can um, hire a, a, a software company to track who's visiting and, and give you uh, detailed information about the company that just stopped by your, your website that morning. This is a, a treasure trove, I think, of, of data available to B2B marketers that is not available to consumer marketers, which is why one reason I find it so exciting. Yeah, there's not many areas where B2B has more data than consumers or has something consumer marketing doesn't. Yeah, exactly. One thing that we've, um, we recommend to people we do here, we find very successful is when we do email campaigns, we will, every link in the campaign, we will put the, um, the user's either their email address or some sort of code that references to them in the in the link itself so the question mark slash you know afterward type thing um so that not only can we tell what 
company was coming to the site, but what individual contact was coming to the site. Yeah, we found that to be really, uh, really useful for our you know sales to marketing connection. There, salespeople love it when you don't just say X Y Z company visited, but this person you know from the from the company visited. And that's something we've started digging into a lot more. I think there's there's really only a couple companies out there that provide these IP addresses right now. And we're starting to build a database of those because yeah, we recognize how valuable that is. How much um, you can you know, as the different MarTech technologies really are starting to rely on that IP information a lot more, I think, than they used to. And is that contact identified by a, a cookie or how's that done technically? No, just the, the link itself. Um, so when you send, and this is only for email campaigns, you can't, you can't really do it. I mean, you can use cookies and all kinds of other stuff um, for, for other types of identification. But when you send out emails um, and somebody clicks on a link in that email, you can you can customize every link in the email to the individual contact. Right. And that, Understood. And that way you can tell which person came through to the to the site. That's, um, just by a code to the end of the link. Kind yeah, of. yeah, that's very cool. And then of course intent data is still while it's still emerging, there's uh, shows a lot of promise to any person who's who has experience in direct marketing, it, it just makes so much logical sense that if you have downloaded a case study on subject X, that you might be in market for subject X. And I, yeah. the, the tools are available and starting to, to break through. Um, Sixth Sense has been experimenting with this for, for quite a while. Bombora claims to be the, the um, sort of lead, leading deliverer of, of such information. And then I'm also really excited about um, lead space and, and Lattice and Everstring and these other predictive modeling companies who will take your own house file or your respondent file and build a predictive model to find lookalikes in the general population of, of B2B companies and contacts and feed you back a, a pile of, of potential prospects, either at the company level or at the contact level. That's, you know, database marketing 101 put to its best application in B2B. Really exciting. Yeah, enabling what, what you were doing, you know, a long time ago yeah, with the lookalike. Exactly. Um, in a MarTech fashion. Yeah, I think the, 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 the fact that MarTech has really only been with us for about 10 years and these very exciting and productive new opportunities have opened up so quickly. It says to me that the next 10 years is it's going to explode and, and we all need to keep an eye on this stuff. Yeah. One the MarTech is really exciting. We actually just recently launched uh, an API to, to kind of plug our own company here mm -hmm. specifically for MarTech companies. One of the things we notice about them is the barrier to entry is really low. Anybody can go out and create a tool that adds some some point of value within the martech industry but the, the place barrier entry is really high is and, and data may be may be cheap it may be a commodity but for martech companies where you need typically a massive amount of data to make the matches you need to make um you know you really need access to tens of millions and tens of millions of contacts and so that's something with an api where we've been really looking to reach out and kind of foster a scholarship program for some of these martech companies that there's really cool things they could build, but they can't afford the you know hundred thousand dollars a year right off the bat to get access and mass to business data. Hmm. 
What a nifty idea. That's a real contribution you're making. Oh, thanks. We're great people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> another thing I wanted wanted to mention that I'm sure you've you've heard about is I, I, I do a lot of work with one of your, I don't know, colleagues, partners, competitors, I don't know, Starista. And they've, yeah. they've developed a what I think is a nifty new product called Starista Link that marries the consumer record with the B2B contact record. So from, a, you know, I focus on B2B marketing. So I'm thinking, ooh, if I can add information about my B2B customers, personal interests and buying behaviors, that can give me rich new insights to build communications, uh, outreach strategies, to tell the sales team more about their their prospects and current customers, that it, it adds a, a lot of value in our B2B world where most of us have total audience sizes of, you know, 10,000 or, you know, maybe fewer prospects and, and current customers. So we, the more we can know about each of our, our, our customers is usually worth knowing and, or bringing into the customer records. So I think uh, ideas like that can enhance the B2B strategy and, and, um, uh, and, and campaign and relationship building. Funny you mentioned that. I met Starista at an event uh, years ago. And then a couple years before that, I'd started looking at this, the prospect. I said, you know, what's next? E- having emails and business data, you know, early 2000s was a big deal. Um, and then I said, what's the next thing that people are going to want and need now that it, this is a, a commodity? What's, what's the next thing, value we can add? And I thought, if we can overlay business and consumer data... And we looked at it and we said, well, you know what? You would there's just not a high enough match rate across the two. You don't have you don't have a point of information where you can connect them together. Yeah. You have the consumer email probably on the consumer side, and then you have their you, you don't have a you know one piece of information that crosses over. Mm. You actually need multi really massive databases on both sides to have enough overlay for it to have value. Now that was years and years ago though. I then I spoke with Teresa at an event um, just maybe two years ago, something like that. And this came up somehow. I brought it up to them, and they said, "Oh, I believe at the time they said, oh yeah, we're 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 about to launch something like that.' Yeah. And I think now one of the great things is with there's so much social media and so much online. It isn't you know you're not going to a consumer data company and saying let's overlay our files and see where we can connect contacts. There's so much information you can collect from online now. Yeah. Um, given the recent news with with Russia and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's just on social media like Facebook, you can get a lot of information on people. I think that's what companies are starting to do. Companies like Starista, um, I don't, I don't know exactly how they do that, but I imagine a lot of it is is kind of what can you collect? It's this digital exhaust that you find online. People use for intent data in general. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's doing that for consumer data and saying, oh, like, this is you know, these are these are most likely the same people, and here's a lot more information on their favorite sports teams and all this other stuff that would normally be considered uh, consumer fields. I'm not sure, and what I haven't seen yet, if, if they are doing this, more power to them, that's great, um, is the actual overlaying of the consumer data, because that data typically involves things like you know personal purchasing habits, credit ratings, uh, whether they own a home or not, their family, all kinds of stuff like that. And that, that would be very interesting. It's At some point, you have so much information as a marketer, you get 
you know, what we call the creep factor yeah. uh, can come kind of play if you're not careful with how you use it. And marketers are not the most sensitive people. So <laughs> be careful. Gee, but, uh, I hope we are. I, I aspire to be. <laughs> well, usually we get information we want to use it. You know somebody's dog's name and you, and you use it and you don't realize how that's going to look to them. I use the analogy of a singles bar a lot. If you walk up to somebody and you have a great conversation, then it's one thing. But if you walk up to somebody at a, at a singles bar, you start talking and you know everything about them already, that can freak them out a little bit. So I guess I'd say hold back a little bit. Don't let them know that you've been stalking them and know everything about them. <laughs> it, it can creep people out a little bit. Yeah. But no, that I mean, the more information you have, the better. Yeah, the crossover, the consumer and, and business data is is a pretty exciting thing. And I'm you know I'm really glad that they're doing it. Uh, like I said, I, I do. I like to name names of other data companies. And you'd mentioned I, I've got a couple I can rattle off here for the for the listeners, Ruth, um, of companies that I refer people to all the time. That I say one of the things about uh, the data industry is most companies you talk to, hopefully, probably we we work this way. We tell people we're not monogamous when it comes to data. Like you should have multiple sources. We always recommend that people have a good three sources, depending on what your target audience is. You, you want to try to have three sources. The great thing about a commodity is there's no reason to limit yourself to one company as a source. And data is close enough to a commodity that it doesn't cost anything to reach out to a data company and say, let me see a sample. Let me know what you have in this area. Then all you have to have is the guts to tell them no. But let me also, Sky, add that I don't know if this is happening to you, but I am getting emails from unknown data companies offering me lists of business executives all the time. And I, in fact, I was keeping a, a file folder, well, a virtual file folder of these, what I call suspicious data vendors. Uh, this must drive you crazy as a, as a supplier in the field. But uh, I think there's a lot of bad behavior out there and unscrupulous vendors. So just to add a, a cautionary story, I would say that you're getting a referral like you're offering to a, a reliable, trustworthy, and um, professional data vendor, I think is a very important first step. Yeah, there's a couple rules I like to tell people. And the number one rule is if, if they're not U.S.-based, don't buy data from them. Good. If you can't call them and get a person, a live person on the line, don't buy data from yeah. them. Um, and that's, you know, that's just like a nice starting point. And then really, if you know, if they're not one of the recognizable companies out there, and that's one of the things that's happened is now people buy from brands because people who know data know, yeah, our, our industry's, our reputation has been ruined by so many of these overseas companies. They approach us sometimes wanting to sell us data yeah. and they'll tell us, oh, we have, you know, we have this database of this many records we want to sell you. Mm. And I, you know, sometimes they'll tell us where they got it from and it's, we don't work with overseas companies because, you know, we know if, if they're touching our data, somebody in the company at least is going to take that asset and try to sell it out on the market, you know, as a data company. It's just because it's just information, it's too easy for them to turn around and, and start selling it. Now, they can't maintain it. So they're always selling bad data, outdated data right. that they stolen from somebody that they did a project for, whatever it is. But it's not to say everybody. I'm sure there's some good players, but as a general rule of thumb, we just tell people, you know, stick to the players in the U.S. that people that people know of. It gets too. It's it's a shady industry, unfortunately. Yeah. 
Um, so a couple of the companies that I would recommend, companies, some of them have been around a long time, some have not. You mentioned Starista. They're a good company to check in on. And any of these companies should be able to give you a sample, give you a quote, let you know how many records they have in your specific target audience, that kind of stuff. It's not going to cost you anything. So it's really easy. And it should, if you reach out to them, if you send them an email, email the info out and say, here's what I'm interested in, let me know what you have, and they don't get back to you, then they're not a good source for you. So that's a good initial test. That's a good way right off the bat of saying, do you want to talk to this data company? Send them a request, see if they send you anything worthwhile. If they send you a sample, now you can compare that. So Starista is good. Uh, Info USA is a company that you can go to. Uh, Zoom Info, I believe Info USA. If you're looking for direct dial numbers, some companies have different strengths. Info USA is uh, really good on the direct dial number area. Hmm. Then uh, there's Hoover's, of course. They've been around forever. They have really deep information on a lot of companies. And then you have uh, Discover Work, recently uh, purchased Rain King. Those were the two data companies we told our salespeople, don't worry about anybody except for these guys. <laughs> okay. Companies using another data provider, great. Um, but these guys, these guys are going to be difficult. They're very expensive. Now they've merged into one company, but they're very expensive for a reason. Mm-hmm. If if what you're looking for is within their, what they collect, then they're a great source. And they focus on the largest companies. Yeah. I think the top maybe 60,000 companies, something like that is their focus. And they do a great job there. They have org charts. They have very accurate information. Um, they're very up to date and they're just a high quality data company. Um, so they're great for that, but very expensive price yep. tag. Uh, of course, I don't have to mention uh, our, our company name. We've mentioned plenty of times, but Mountaintop Data check us out. If, if a request is sent to us and we don't get back with a sample, then somebody's in trouble. <laughs> any, any companies names you could add in for people to have a look at? Yeah, that's um, that's a good list. I, I might add in the case of uh, looking for response data, I would um, add the merit direct company. It's a, you know, sort of a different animal, but worth uh, talking to for response data. Yeah, then there's a handful of people out of Silicon Valley, new kind of uh, up and coming companies that are, they're kind of on the fringes of data. They have their own angles a little bit. Um, one of the downsides to them is I don't think most of those companies have, I've, I've seen a lot of their data and they don't have very good data foundation, which is really kind of key, but they've got some great MarTech type things where they're not going to get you, you know, 50,000 records within your target audience with complete information, but they can get you something useful for your for your marketing but i would say as a foundation kind of the the companies i named off are the ones that i would i would start looking at for people they can provide that you know that raw data source that your sales team your marketing team really really wants uh and and really needs in order to uh, get their job done great i know i've left some companies out I'm going to have to apologize to those companies. I didn't mean to snub them, <laughs> but uh, I was just going, off, just going off the top of my head there. I, you know, I have the name, the number 12 typically that I usually say to people, there's 12 companies you can trust out there. It, just because it's a good round number. Mostly I do have a, a list of competitors that I'll, um, I'll, I'll look at regularly, but, um, oh, I guess when you're talking about different things like maybe technology data, you have companies like, uh, Aberdeen group, like, uh, HG data out there couple other new ones uh, that have come up recently. And then, so there's these these offshoots of data, like you said, intent data, stuff like that. Then you get companies like yeah. Inside View and and kind of these these fringe companies. There's a, a lot of companies out there now that um, have LinkedIn connectors where when you're on LinkedIn, they will feed you information from LinkedIn. 
Um, most of those companies are a little, again, they don't have a data foundation behind them usually. Mm -hmm. They are just uh, appending based on common conventions and email address and scraping anything they can find online uh, related to that profile. But there's still some really great tools I've seen with those out there. There's still some, you know, when if you're on LinkedIn a lot during the day as an individual versus a marketing person, probably more for the salespeople, it yeah. can be great to have a little extra information pop up on the side when you're looking at a profile. And there's a, a couple really good companies out there that do that as well. Yeah, you're making my point that over the next 10 years, the sky's the limit in some of the exciting new data sources that are going to hit the hit the market and allow us to do better than ever. Yeah, I was recently doing a marketing uh, or a market research, marketing research, I don't know, um, a market research uh, interview with somebody and I asked them what, like, if you could have one piece of data you don't have access to now, if you have, what would it be? The answer was, I, I want to know when they're ready to buy. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, right. Okay, that's the answer we get from a lot of people. Can you give me a list of people ready to buy our product? And they say, no, no, you do <laughs> that work still. If that exists. Yeah. You know, if it wasn't difficult, everybody would be doing it is kind of the answer there. Um, the holy grail. But that is yeah. kind of what intent data is trying to do. It's trying to say, hey, these people are much more ready to buy. These people may look the same, but this one here has been doing this particular activities that tend to be what people do when they're looking to buy, that kind of stuff. Exactly. I like to refer to the intent data as kind of a, a treasure map. You can get a lot of different treasure maps, and some of them are good and some of them aren't. You don't really know, but sometimes you find that piece of intent data where you say, wow, now everybody who's who's making this touch point here is a great target force. And that's kind of all you need is that one touch point, maybe two crossing over. And all of a sudden you, you say, you know, the, these are people we want to go after. Basically, it's almost better than an inbound call when people have are carrying out these one or two activities. It's, it's so custom for every industry. And as soon as you find something that triggers that these people are ready to buy, everybody else is going to find that out too. And then that makes them no longer a good target. It's a, it's just a constantly moving target. I guess that's what keeps us employed as marketers. <laughs> here, here. Again, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So there's only one Ruth Stevens because it's difficult. <laughs> but you know, that, that brings up a, another topic that is a pet peeve of mine. I find that data as a concept is sometimes a source of anxiety and fear among marketers. Um, I'll give you an example. When I'm talking to MBA candidates who are marketing majors and I'm, you know, showing them a pro forma P&L or some other number Z or, or um, uh, arithmetic involved uh, element a lot of them will say, I went into marketing so I didn't have to worry about this stuff. Yeah. And um, that legacy or fallacy is, I think, a, a something that we as, you know, marketing leaders or, or uh, thinking about what it means to be a great marketer should do what we can to try to reduce the fear of data on, on the part of mar marketers. I sometimes say, People say, um, or people are hoping that the data fairy will come along and wave her wand and all of their data issues will go away. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, yeah. Have, you know, don't have, to, have to worry about it. But I think it's actually easier than it sounds. It's really more the fear of the un unknown. 
And um, it's actually easier than math when you think about it. What I recommend is that people actually look at records because if you look at a customer record, it represents a real individual. So it brings that kind of familiar social factor and takes it away from the, the, the tech factor and allows a, a marketer to really think about a particular person or a particular company target. And so just getting familiar with your data records just a couple at a time can go a long way. And then another suggestion I make to people is that they make friends with their data administrator. <laughs> you know, on a, on a personal level. If you don't know how to do what you need to do in Excel, you can always ask them if you're friends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the things that, um, you know, we recommend or I have our, our marketing people do when they're new and just as a regular practice um, is grab 20 records from any anything we're looking to do. I say you have to spot check 20 records. You got to grab them. You're, you know, you pull some data in a specific target to run a campaign, grab 20 records, look at all the fields we have on them and see if anything jumps out. Uh, because that campaign can, could blow up on you if you don't look at this. You're going to find something that jumps out. And, you know, maybe it's one field you forgot to sort by when, it, when, when running the query. That means half the data is actually off target or these people are no longer a company or, you know, the company mm. flagged as, as not a good fit or they said, please never call us again. Whatever it is. You've got to pull all the fields and look at them and just look for anything like a, like a detective when they walk into a crime scene. What's out of place? What doesn't, you know, what's, is there something that sticks out to you? And, you know, if there's not, great. But over time, I think the more experienced the marketer is, the more when they look at just a handful of data fields, something will stick out to them. And it'll either be a record that doesn't belong there, or it'll be something that's similar between all the records, or, but it, it really doesn't hurt to take a couple minutes pull 20 records and look at them. Great. And I love your detective analogy. That'll really make it more comfortable and, and appealing. It feels cooler than, you know, doing something with math too. <laughs> yeah. It's cooler and less geeky. Also Excel. Like you don't have to know the math. Like you said, you don't have to know the math. You do have to know how to Google. I taught myself Excel. I know Excel better than most people in my company because when I don't know how to do something, I know Excel can do it. I just Google it. The answers are all there. Yeah. You can copy and paste an equation. You don't have to understand every part of it even. You'll understand over time. You'll play with it. You'll figure it out. You have a list of equations you keep you use a lot. But you know, learn Excel. Know what a V lookup is. You know, know how to do some just simple things and concatenate stuff and stuff like that. And your life is so much easier. If you're in marketing and you don't know how to use Excel, you're really relegating yourself to, you know, some of the lower level, very specific mm. You know, you can carry out some functions, but you're just not going to be able to to rise up in the in the ranks. Hmm. Great. That's great advice. Anyway, I think is there anything else we want to touch on? I think data uses hygiene. We spoke to all these things a little bit. Is there anything that we're missing here before we end? We can always have you back again, Ruth. We'd love to have you back again. But anything we want to cover? Well, I I would ask you, what is your favorite tip for to marketers on the hygiene front? Oh, wow. Favorite tip on the hygiene front. Uh, sort. Yeah. Oh. My favorite tip is sort. When you're looking at a spreadsheet of data, and it, if you look at data in the CRM, export it to an Excel spreadsheet, look at it there, and sort by each field and see what comes to the top and what comes to the bottom. You'll see what fields are missing, how much of what field's missing, 
And you'll see when in the title field you have a whole bunch of, you know, gobbledygook and asterisks and stuff like that that can easily be cleaned out. Also, when you're looking at files from a potential data vendor, sort, get a sample, ask them for a 100 record sample and sort some of those fields. And you will really quickly be able to rank these data vendors and say, oh, wow, these guys weren't even trying. And, you know, these guys were. And that's kind of important to know. Mm, that's a great, great idea. So would you like to know my tip? Yes. Key enter the data correctly in the first place. Oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> and that, that has um, a couple of managerial implications that are, I think, interesting. One is the point I made earlier about how you don't want salespeople doing data entry. But whoever is doing data entry in, in many companies is the poorest paid, least respected employee around. Well, not necessarily at the bottom, but not at the top either. So um, training and motivating and incenting data entry people, I think, is an, an important first step. And I guess I'd also say hold your data entry people accountable. When somebody enters a bunch of data, um, spot check it afterward because, you know, one quarter of the time what you're going to hear from them is oops when, <laughs> oh, yeah, I didn't format this field properly or this went to the wrong spot or I don't know how many files we've seen from customers where we're cleaning their data and we're just like, oh, wow, they're, you know, a quarter. It's not all – it isn't like they got all their data imported at once, so it'll be chunks here and chunks there. But, you know, we'll sort by different things and, and you'll see stuff where, where you can identify whole chunks of data that came at the same time because the state and country got swapped or the first and last name got swapped. We see a lot. Or there's a couple fields that just got offset by one because somebody messed up in an Excel spreadsheet. And now, you know, all the phone numbers are in the city and all the cities are in the state and all that. And it, it's just crazy. Like, check that stuff. because boy, can that sabotage campaigns when the information is just all off you're throwing away a large part of your database when i guess we can do that so yeah um get the data imported properly that'd be a big one great stuff excellent well it's been a blast having you on ruth um a lot of fun for me too sky thank you i'd love to have you on again sometime and i want to mention some places that people can come to find you uh also on the uh the elephanttest.com website we've got our show notes there for this episode We'll be putting this episode out really soon. I guess people listening, it's already out. Or they wouldn't be at this point in the podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, a couple things um, to find Ruth. There's a, you mind if I throw out your Twitter handle here? I'm pretty sure that's a public thing. I'd be thrilled. Thank you. Okay. At Ruth P. Stevens. And then you can find her also. She's a regular contributor on uh, biznology.com. That's a great source for B2B marketing content. I think I've spoken about it in the past. Thank you. Then uh, I think your most recent book is the B2B Data book. Is that right? Yes, B2B Data Driven Marketing that was co-authored with Theresa Kushner. And that's uh, what data driven marketing sources, uses, results. Um, so you want to touch up a little bit more on the data, go get that, buy it for your marketing department and, and insist somebody read it. Excellent. Anywhere else you want people to go to find more out about you? Thank you. Yes, my, my articles uh, are all at ruthstevens.com as is uh, a bit more information about what I do for my clients. So appreciate a swing by my website and I'm very active on LinkedIn. So uh, I invite people to link with me. Thank you. Excellent. And again, people, if you aren't following Ruth, if you don't know who she is, 
then hopefully you're earlier in your career, but you're not doing your job if you, if you don't uh, <laughs> doesn't follow her. The great thing is That's funny. the book you need to pay for, but uh, things like following her on LinkedIn and uh, reading her Biznology articles, those kind of things, that's all free, people. Well, thank you for coming on, Ruth. We will uh, talk again soon, I hope. Thank you. A quick word from our sponsor. Effective marketing starts with good data. At Mountaintop Data, we are experts at developing and maintaining high-quality marketing lists. With tens of millions of highly accurate records and more data being added daily, we're sure to have the contacts you need. Learn more at mountaintopdata.com. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Elephant Test. Check out the show notes at elephanttest.com. Thank you so much for listening from all of us here at The Elephant Test. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.